Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What is an exorcism? What case helped inspire the 1973 film The Exorcist? Are demons in possession what they appear to be? Hello and welcome to the 705th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on ON 1240 Radio, celebrating 70 years of broadcasting in New England's beautiful Blackstone Valley. I'm Ben, and those devilish questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and father, Paul. And today we uh, bring you a new guest on a subject many of you have been asking about, and uh, we welcome your calls and emails. Numbers are 800-449-1240 from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, or 401-766-1240 locally, or Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for emails. Before we introduce our guest, we must mention that today would have been the 127th birthday of H.P. Lovecraft, the great 20th century Rhode Island author of horror and fantasy fiction, and more or less our distant, co- I guess more or less distant cousin, a fifth cousin is Makes distant. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So wherever and whenever in the multiverse you are, happy birthday, Howard, at least here. Stephen Lachance has been called one of the most prolific supernatural writers of this generation. In 2007, he released the best-selling book, The Uninvited, which detailed his own haunting while he and his children lived in the so-called Screaming House in Union, Missouri. Stephen has written many other books, which he will tell us about later, but the one we'll talk about today is Confrontation with Evil, an in-depth review of the 1949 possession that inspired The Exorcist, released in February by Llewellyn Publications. Stephen has appeared on numerous television and radio shows worldwide, has had lots and lots of media involvement, and worked on the popular television series Supernatural. His website, Stephen Lachance, that's Stephen with a V, StephenLachance.com. So Stephen Lachance, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Oh, well, it's great to have you with us. So I guess, you know, we should start at the very beginning. So lay out the case uh, in 1949 for us. Well, 1949... 25 words or less, I'm kidding. Five words or less, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. 1949, young boy in Maryland um, who starts showing signs of uh, what could be called as strange behavior, strange things uh, accompanied with paranormal type occurrences, um, which that started in, in um, around January 1949, and it, it went on um, until they moved into St. Louis, uh, where he, he was actually um, undergone uh, several, well, more than several, you know, it was about a month and a half, two months of exercise. So um, that's basically, it's not five words of us, but it came close, right? <laughs> okay. Oh, well, fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, we notice it that, now. I heard about this case from Father John Nicola, who was one of my mentors, and uh, he mm-hmm. more or less, you know, and, and it, it agrees certainly pretty much with your with your book what he said. But we didn't spend a lot of time on that. We were dealing with current cases, and he was just sort of getting me uh, <coughs> uh, prepped for some sort of work, and maybe in that field in the church, which never happened. Well, it did, but it it didn't didn't. <laughs> Um, I notice first of all, and perhaps, and this, I was looking forward to comparing notes with you on this, um, that these cases seem to begin, at least all the ones I've been involved with, begin with very slowly. And uh, in, in this case uh, of the boy in, uh, well, starting out I guess in Maryland and ending up in St. Louis, uh, with scratching, you know, little sounds, and and at least the way I see it, they. The, as you get more annoyed and fearful, et cetera, it, it feeds on that and gets stronger. I mean, do you, have you ever run into a case that does not start out 
slowly it just starts out with a bang personally my my personal you 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 know we said at the beginning of the show that I had been through something before um that one with the the children and the children being infected that one started out is like it was like dynamite you know fire really? uh, mm. dynamite series really it was it was it was practically within overnight it was it, it, everything accelerated very quickly with that one I think with this one you know if we talk about this one we notice that um, when you look at the case it does start with the scratching but you, it, it immediately seems to switch you know um, the case actually starts before his aunt died um, two weeks after her death is when things really, really seem to key up, doesn't mm. it? And, it? and that was only what we're talking maybe a month, a month and a half top that that happened. So, I mean, you know, that's actually pretty quick in a lot of these cases. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, months, and, you know, sometimes you'll find people will be in that um, infestation stage for years even. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's unusual when we see these where, um, even in that case, in this, the case we're discussing today, that it happens so quick. Um, but generally, yeah, you're right. It's it's more of a it's more of a slow process, a slow burn, so to speak. One thing I think people don't understand, and you can please comment on this, uh, is that people don't understand that an exorcism is a very long and complicated process. It's not just sitting somebody down and reading a prayer and having weird things happen. Uh, everyone I've seen is different, and uh, it, it can involve long uh, months of counseling, uh, medical uh, possible med- medical tests, things of this kind, as well as the the, the prayer and theological approaches. Everything else, uh, I mean, I just thought I'd mention that because a lot of people think it's like it is in the movies, you know. Right. I, I mean, that's just what I was exactly going to say. I think, you know, a lot of that comes from entertainment where we look at it and they have to get it done in 10 minutes. Yeah, you, you <laughs> can't get your information that. from Hollywood. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of times you'll see, you know, people, you know, it's not unusual for somebody to go through this, you know, 10, 20, 50, 60 or more times, you know. Oh yeah, no. Well, one I, I I was involved in ten of them, and three of them were on the same person, which I did not think was a good yeah. idea. But like you know, I was a twenty-one-year-old seminarian. Like they're going to listen to me, right? Uh, right. Did, the, did you ever get the impression that this whole approach just is not good enough? That there's something more. There's a lot more going on here than just the theology and and uh, sort of maybe. I always thought it was kind of arrogant to assume that whatever these beings are, they agree with our theology. I, I don't know. It just it just didn't seem good enough to me. But what say you? Well, you know, I think what what one of the things is is um, it's not that it's not good enough or it's not effective enough. It does seem to be effective. It's the behavior afterwards. I mean, you know, look at it this way: these people got into these situations from some type of behavior, but some type of invitation. You know, if you keep putting that invitation out over and over again, you can be exercised all they want. Mm. They can take care of it, but if you just invite it right back into your life, you're in the same boat again, aren't you? Yeah, you know, true. And I, so I don't think it's a matter of it not being effective. I think it's a matter of the after, after advice or the after period. Um, that is so crucial that, you know, and I've always found this is to be the most difficult part of it because you have to un- have someone understand 
where they participated in their own possession or their own harming um, or it to stop. Because until you understand your link to your problem and why you're there, you're just going to go back and repeat the same mistake again. Uh, oh, no, I couldn't agree more. Uh, actually, what I kind of meant was that the whole belief system isn't really good enough in the sense of understanding what's really happening. In other words, when I was involved in these things, it was like uh, you go in so, you know, using authority. This is the Roman Catholic approach anyway. The authority right. of Christ, which is bibl- perfectly biblical. And you're trying to throw the thing out. You ask for its name, and, and I, I always questioned everything in the seminar. It's probably well, probably why I never made it to the priesthood. I had a lot of a lot of questions. For example, uh, okay, you, you, you want to get the thing's name, and sometimes there are many of them, supposedly. And uh, how do you bl- why why do you believe this? It's it's like when someone's involved in some kind of uh, contact experience with an alien thing, and I think some of these labels are arbitrary because of our narrow paradigm. I wonder if it's sometimes they're the same thing because you run into abduction cases that turn quote unquote demonic and they start having poltergeist activity in their houses after seeing the UFOs and it's, it all seems to kind of mix together sometimes. So I was you know, I would wonder, you know, why why are they believing what this thing says? And then in other cases I run in, into entities that I knew were the same things and they were they were they were pretending to be Uncle Chuck, you know, who died ten years before and everybody believed it. And the bloody things just struck me as just parasites. And then in the Bridgeport Poltergeist, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to be talking here, but you got me going because it's, you're the guest. No, <coughs> I, 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 you're exactly right. But in the Poltergeist case in Bridgeport, Connecticut, in '74, I had a physical. This thing had a body for crying out. It wasn't a spirit, at least you know, because I'm, I'm feeling bone structure, and it was, it was, I was having a struggle with it to protect this child. And, uh, you know, I think if had we not come in there and at least done something, that might have ended up in a possession case. I don't know. So, anyway, I, I, I'm sorry to, to hog the floor here, but, you know, I, no, I'm excited you, about this subject. Things so. that I thought were really, really cool and interesting there, first of all. Um, one of the things that you said that I thought was interesting was when you were talking about the physicality of it. Yeah. Um, one of the, the first exorcisms that I went through um, where, you, you know, um, he was praying you over the the girl and she gets up and she runs away and I have to run you know to get her and I catch her and she's outside the front door of the house and she's vomiting and as she did this and I, I gotta tell you that it was like black crude oil was just pouring out of the shirt like mm-hmm. and I'm holding on to her in the the thing that I noticed about it and and I, I can still feel it today even just thinking about it was her bones repositioning in her body. Yeah, I've heard of that. I've never seen it myself, but yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, so when I, you know, she passes out and I take her back in, we lay her down. And um, the exorcist looks at me and he goes, you felt it, did And I said, I had no idea, was that physical? And he's like, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very, very physical, physical manifestation. Yeah. And it really is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It makes you wonder about quantum mechanics, you know. How it works. Well, let, let's get back. Okay. Well, well, let's get back to the uh, the, the case. Uh, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. The second thing that you said was really interesting too. Is you're absolutely right. The parasite, and not only that is it, it, it connects to one person, but you'll see. And we see that in 2009 there was a lot of cases that were coming out of the paranormal world because 
you hit all these people that were out looking for demons. Oh, tell me about some it. of them were actually fighting. Remember, and you know, and it seemed like all the attachments that year were coming out of the investigators. I don't know why, but the, the interesting part of it is, is it is it's a parasite. It starts in one spot and it reaches out. Um, and you know, and the next thing you know, the next person is you know your family, your friends, you know, and then those that come to help you are affected. It, it just keeps spidering out. Yeah, I saw that in my own as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, <coughs> excellent uh, observations there. Uh, let's get back to the um, the 1949 case because we, you know, uh, we, we're going to burn up the hour here. Uh, I don't know Ben had any <laughs> questions so far, but uh, I understand that uh, the case began. <coughs> Father uh, Nicola mentioned this too that it started out pretty much with a Ouija board. The aunt uh, <coughs> showing the little boy how to use the Ouija board, and and uh, that could have been certainly a certainly needless to say a catalyst to this. Mm-hmm. It could have been a catalyst. It could have been the catalyst of the invitation um, stage. I see, I find it interesting that we already had some activity going before the anti, um, but I do find it more interesting that the activity really raises after the anti. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's where it gets really interesting to me. Um, you know, but surely you know the Ouija board could have been the catalyst that. Um, that opened the doorway, and then the doorway was further opened as they went down that trail. Sure. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the things we ask in cases is, um, okay, when did this negativity begin, or as far as you, you can tell? And they'll say, well, maybe three or four years after we moved into the house, or maybe a year, maybe two. And we'll say, okay, what changed in your life that, as you might put it, Stephen, it was the invitation you know, to this. And uh, as, as you say, if you don't treat the disease and only treat the symptoms, you know, you're going to have a recurrence. So that was, that's just... Well, in, this, in this case... Oh, I'm sorry? No, no, go ahead, please. In this case, I think when you look at it, and I think when you look at the mother and we start looking at her behavior... Um, Always before, we were always told that the mother was always, and I think a lot of this came from the book, and if you um, looked at the film The Exorcist, you know, she was kind of portrayed as the victim. Mm. Um, there was reason for that, obviously. I think she was playing in the fear of, of all of the modern-day mothers out there that were going back into the workforce and stuff, and I get into that in the book. But, but you know, I, I look at this mother, and she really wasn't the, the victim that we thought she was, as in, you know, she had to sit there and witness this happening to her son. Because I started noticing one of the first things that she did um, the night that um, there was noises going in the, the boys' room, there was sound of marching feet up and down the bed, the bed was shaking. And she called out um, to a, the aunt that had died. You know, mm-hmm. and she asked if this is Aunt So and So. Will you knock? And the thing that struck me when I read that the first time is, and I, you know, I, I I was flabbergasted that no one's ever looked at it. And I thought, really, did she just say that? Now she had always been painted out as this um, nice, kind Lutheran woman who went to church on Sunday. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe that's the case. There was a lot of people during the spiritualism era that. Monday, you know, through Saturday, they were practicing spiritualism, and then Sunday they were in church. 
She does this twice, by the way, about, you know, for the end. And what struck me about it was that it was a very much of the way of a woman that did not, uh, who, who had to have a knowledge of how to communicate. Because um, she was communicating in much the ways I've heard a lot of investigators communicate. Can you knock three times? Can you give me a noise? Mm. And I thought, well, she might be. She's not as innocent as everybody thought, Dave. And then it goes on, and obviously the boy turns into the oracle itself. He's almost a huge Ouija board at one point when words start appearing on his body and the mother's standing over it, and she's asking questions. Now, the questions she's asking are, should I go to St. Louis? How long should I stay there? Should I send him to school? Now, keep in mind, every time these words come out on his body, it's extremely painful, so he's screaming, yelling out in pain. And this mother standing there asking these questions, knowing that this is going to cause her some extreme pain. But she's standing there waiting to watch and see what comes out on him. And I thought, man, this is not acting like a mother that any mother that I would want. And you know, my mother or I would react with my children. And then it goes on later, and actually later, and I know we got it. We do only have an hour to get this quick. But later, when they do get to finally get to say first, they see an alphabet. And then when the exorcist finally does show up at the house, they find out that the mother is actually, what she does is she asks, Oh, did we, uh, did we, uh, Steven, do we still have you? Oh. <laughs> Whoa. Take that as a no. Well, <laughs> okay. That's uh, interesting. Well, well, hopefully he can. Uh, he'll call Stephen if you're listening. Please, uh, please call back and make sure you're on a landline. All right. Well, there we are. Uh, <clears throat> these cases. Um, uh, I'm interested in finding out how many cases Stephen has been involved with. Uh, I was involved with ten, as I say, three of them on the same person, uh, all in the context of a psychiatric hospital in New York State, because uh, it was. Um, I was just assisting the priest. I wasn't obviously doing these things. Just just being an assistant. As well, I think it, it, it's interesting as I as I read read through some some portions of well a, a major chunk of the book um, that the family. It, it's really interesting that it, it's the early it's you know the mid 1940s when this this whole thing start like starts up and the family you know turned to spiritualism. Out of all things, the thing that actually essentially started the whole problem. You know, it's very common. Yeah, it's really weird. I believe our guest is calling back. Okay. But, uh, yeah, it's just the the answers to these situations are um, sort of... uh, People have different answers to it, uh, and they may be right, they may not be right. So I think we have our our guest back here, and we'll continue our discussion of, uh, of course, his book, um, Confrontation with Evil. Uh, the in-depth review of the 1949 possession Steven, of are you with the us? Exorcist. You knocked them off. Oh, there we go. Uh, yeah, yeah. That usually happens when we're talking about UFOs, so consider yourself fortunate. Okay, so why don't we continue our discussion then. Uh, Steven, you're talking about the, um, of course, we're talking about the 1949 St. Louis exorcism case and the uh, rather strange position of the mother. And uh, Ben was commenting that uh, they seemed to turn to spiritualism first, which was certainly a mistake. So please continue. Whoa! This is uh, this, wow. this second is the time's w- the charm, huh? <laughs> yeah, this is uh, probably the, the strangest uh, situation we've had since the um, uh, Rendlesham Forest 
series we did on CBS in uh, in 2009. A lot of the brand new studio in Detroit and all kinds of strange people laughing in the background and all sorts of odd things. And the engineers at CBS just couldn't figure it out. And uh, we're going to give this. We, we just we lost him, huh? We did. Although you know, maybe he'll call back, and uh, we'll see how that goes. All right. This, this, I was enjoying this discussion because he, uh, Stephen, and, and I seem to have similar backgrounds in this this kind of thing. One of the questions I was trying to get at uh, earlier was, um, you know, do you really think our understanding of what this is is good enough? I mean, if you go in, the exorcist goes in from a Christian exorcist anyway, and we'll assume these are servants of the devil possessing a person. And, and you know, so you could argue that in a way, but I, again, I, did, I thought that was too narrow of a view myself. Uh, but of course, as I say, I was a 21-year-old seminary student and nobody was going to pay any attention to me except uh, maybe as, as an assistant. Uh, so I was expected to learn that point of view, and um, I, I, I tried to, but I mean, I just, I kept questioning things, and as I said to Steve, I'm, uh, I'm a questioner, and uh, I asked a lot, of unquest- uh, a lot of questions in the seminary. It's probably a good thing I didn't make it to ordination. So I think we have Steve back again. We're going to give it another try and see if we can continue our discussion on the 1949 exorcism case in St. Louis, on which the... Uh, exorcist film of 1973 was based um, actually in the seminary I had to labor under that movie because the church was paranoid at the time and I, I they looked askance at my paranormal work because people uh, wanted answers from the church on, on the exorcism and things of this kind and in my opinion was just tell them what the belief is don't clam up that just makes people more curious so anyway, that's uh, probably one of the reasons in 1977 I got uh, tossed out a year or two before ordination, and uh, I suppose the church and I maybe have had a lucky escape. Uh, I have not been involved directly, indirectly, of course, but not, not directly with any exorcism since the 1970s, um, and I don't particularly want to be again. But again, the, the view uh, between, with that and summing up that and other cases I've been involved with, particularly Poltergeist, and, and Ben tends to agree on this too, uh, I think we're dealing uh, not with servants of Satan uh, in, in, in any sense like as the, the classical theology would go. I think we're dealing with parasitical entities, as Stephen agrees up to that point, and we are dealing with entities that uh, simply are life forms, uh, very physical in their own parallel worlds in the sense of quantum mechanics and the, the multiple worlds theory, which I think is uh, very, very definitely played out not only in the paranormal but in our daily lives. And I think we've got, um, that's what we're dealing with, and I think it has to be approached like that. Um, simply getting in there and um, uh, commanding it to do things, uh, all, all, even if it's in the name of Christ or whatever people are, the belief system may be, uh, can only I think at times will aggravate the situation, which is why it doesn't always work. But Steve made a very very important point, and that is that the behavior and the follow up is absolutely crucial. If the person continues the behavior that uh, created the invitation for the parasite to come in in the first place, then uh, no, the exorcism is not going to help. No, and, and sometimes there are many exorcisms, as he pointed out. The most I ever saw was three on the same person. But I think the idea that you know, people have got to change their behavior uh, appropriately. And uh, it, it, they must have the support of their families, and there's a lot of counseling involved. 
and uh, you have to. You've also got the uh, the ob- the objectives of keeping the press away. You don't want publicity on these things, and uh, of simply if if it's a Roman Catholic situation, convincing. Uh, the local bishop that an exorcism is required. And again, I don't know how constructive it is. I think that, that, that there are other ways to approach it. Uh, ben and I refer to it as the uh, Peter Pan theory. Now, if it's gone to the point where there's, there, there is a bond between the parasite and the victim, um, I, I've, I've had victims writing love letters to the parasites thinking that they were, that, that, that it, he, she, it, or it was a, um, lover from a former life that happened right here in rhode island uh, many years ago but it did so uh i don't know it's it's a difficult situation and many would disagree with with my point of view on that but uh, so far it's uh, if we can get steve back here we'll <laughs> hopefully after our break we'll um, be able to continue the discussion on this very interesting case uh so <clears throat> okay uh, steve are you back with us yes i'm back with you i apologize Oh, that's, I'm sure it's not your fault. Uh, the cosmos uh, seems to be against us. Well, you're just in time for our break. And uh, we're going to take our bottom of the hour break here. You're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, broadcasting for the 70th year here. And we're with our fascinating guest, Stephen Lachance, uh, talking about the 1949, uh, polter, uh, I should say, uh, exorcism case in St. Louis, I hope. Uh, if we survive till after the break, we'll continue the discussion. Stay with us. Hi, this is Joe Callahan, host of Coffee Ann, the longest-running panel discussion show in American radio. You never know what topic will pop up on Coffee Ann. So join us weekday mornings 8 to 9 on ON 1240 WOON Woonsocket Radio. Well, we're back behind the paranormal, and our guest Stephen Lachance is with us, I hope, and we're going to continue our discussion of the 1949 St. Louis exorcism case on which the exorcist film was based. Now, Stephen, I don't remember where we were, but why don't we begin the second half hour with a question, why were so many priests involved in this case, and how did they get involved? Well, interesting enough, I think a lot of people have this number that they came to St. Louis for an exorcism, which they did. Um, first person they see when they get here is an alphabet media. It wasn't until um, one of the cousins uh, of the young boy um, decided to go to St. Louis University where they were going to school and they were talking to one of their professors and they said he needs help, which was Father Raymond Bishop. Um, and that's when Father Bishop went to his superiors and they said, well, go check it out, obviously, and he goes, and he comes back realizing that he needs help. And that's when they, they assigned uh, Father Balder, who was the exorcist to the case. Um, in, 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 in a lot of different ways, they had a lot of people assisting at different times. There were um, Father Holleran, who later became a priest. He was studying to be a priest at the moment. He wasn't a full, full priest at that time. He was just in seminary. Um, he would be there to mostly hold the boy down through different things. Yeah, that's what I had um, to do. And Father Van Rue, right. Father Van Rue was there, and he would assist with the, with the, um, the prayers and such. Um, and then you had the brothers from Alexian Brothers, which, which were involved, plus you had the, um, the priests and such from St. Xavier. So there, there was a lot of people involved in this. 
Yeah. And I think it was just osmosis of people trying to help him um, over such an extended period of time. Were there any doctors involved? Because everyone I was involved with, albeit because it was in the context of a hospital, there was always a doctor present. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing is, is he, he went to see a doctor early on, and the doctor um, could find nothing really physically wrong with him. He also saw a psychologist early on, um, and they couldn't find any psychologically psychologically wrong with him. They said he was just anxious, and obviously I would be anxious too going through the things yeah. he was going through. So um, all of that normal now, later on, um, they obviously they were in the Alexian Brothers Hospital. I'm sure they had, um, I'm sure they had uh, attending attending physician looking over him at a certain point um, to make sure he was okay. Because yeah. my cases were 30 years after this, and uh, it was mm-hmm. in a state hospital, which is interesting. But it, they they would call the priest I was working with was the chaplain who was also the diocesan exorcist and he would you know when the doctors would be in a room and stuff would start flying off shelves on the other side of the room from this patient who'd been diagnosed schizophrenic or paranoid or whatever uh, or uh, dissociative identity disorder or anything like that then then they'd call us and realize it's obviously not some sort of condition uh, in the person's mind necessarily right. creating this so uh, what are, what sorts of phenomena accompanied this 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 possession case, uh, just sort of a smorgasbord, if you would. A lot of uh, uh, things appearing on his body in the form. He, he described them as brand, by the way. They felt like brand mm-hmm. would happen. Um, the words would appear on his body. Um, you had, um, he would sometimes sing um, in, in a beautiful, they said he, was, he would sing in the most beautiful singing voice that they ever heard. Um, and he would sing things like, I, one of the things that I thought was uh, interesting, he would sing Swanee. But on the other hand, he would sing the old rugged cross, too, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, he would hum the Blue Danube. Uh, he would say, you know, obviously a, uh, there was a lot of uh, bodily kind of function things going on, too, yeah. that were pretty horrible. Um, he would levitate things, things would move around room, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, it's, I want people to get away from the idea, though, of the film in the girl, in the film, because I think what Blatty had in mind when he did the film was he, he did a conglomeration of everything that was ever possible that could happen in exorcism. These things don't always happen at once, and they don't happen in every case, and obviously the spinning of the head <laughs> such as well. But in this case, I mean, he did a lot of those things. It's a foul language. Um, he, you know, he would threaten them. Um, there was all of that sort of thing going on. And it's pretty much what you would expect out of possession. Mm-hmm. One of the scariest experiences I ever had was, was not in the context of a possession case like this, but it was in Haiti. Uh, I was invited to a voodoo uh, ceremony, in a loa ceremony. It really was probably one of the scariest things, and I, I sort of worked my way in with the voodoo priest uh, there at the time. And uh, most most outsiders are not invited to this sort of thing, but it was it was possession, it was parasitical activity, and uh, people thought it was wonderful. What one man said that he, he was shouting out the, the date of his own death, and I talked to him later after he'd come down and. and I said, isn't this off? He said, no, 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 it's wonderful. Now I can prepare my family 
for when I die. So I suppose, you know, talk about it, taking a, you know, look at the bright side kind of approach. <laughs> you know, it was the same feel, the same filthy kind of entities that were involved in, in the, the exorcism cases. It was really scary. But to get, I, I keep getting us off track here, uh, but but what, okay. um, what what sort of follow-up was done? After, when was when was the exorcism considered a success, or was it? The exorcism happened, in, in this is, I think, interesting. It, it ends on the Monday, um, fall, Easter Monday of that year. Um, I mean, it, the point that it ends, uh, there's, there's a whole lot that goes on in the end. Um, we always tend to focus on the bad, but there was a lot of good happening at that moment, too. Mm-hmm. Um, they claim that St. Michael makes an appearance at, at the St. Xavier Church, and there were things that were going on at the hospital at the point. Um, but that's when it ended, and um, he was able to take um, uh, his communion the next day mm-hmm. um, in, the, in, in church. Okay. Um, they followed up with him. The parents actually became Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Christmas of that year, um, and they followed up from him from a religious standpoint. Now, in, in said he was doing quite well. He did. He, he they, they, the claim is is that he doesn't remember. I think whether that is a, a protective device he, for himself or whatever. I don't know, but he doesn't remember anything. And he actually went on to work for NASA. Um, in, oh, I didn't in, know that. Um, yeah. yeah. He did. He went. And what I thought was interesting about that, because everybody always says, "Well, you know, what he was crazy." I mean, he was, he was schizophrenia. It was just bad. You realize he went on to work for NASA. What kind of security clearances and what kind of evaluation he had to undergo to be able to work for them, especially since he worked for them as they say as rocket Yeah. You know, so I find that interesting as well. So he went on to lead a very, very normal life. He's still alive. He's in his seventies now. Mm-hmm. Could you speak just into the phone uh, directly? Because uh, sometimes you're kind of fading out a little bit. Okay, I apologize. Okay, no, that's good. That's fine. Um, okay, um, do you feel you know not, not having? You know, there's always a disadvantage not having been at the scene. Do you feel that this case is accurately reported? In what in the sources you've seen? For the most part, for the most part, and that was that was a struggle. You know, um, I grew up in St. Louis. I, I, I heard all of the urban I've heard all the stories. I mean, it's kind of one of those things. If you grow up there, it's, it's kind of ingrained. In um, everybody wants to talk about. Um, mm. Everybody's got a story. So when I really wanted to get into the evaluation of it, I, I was curious of where would be the best places because obviously the the actual priests are gone now. Um, I think Father Hollering was the last to go. Yeah. So that was interesting then not to be able to go to anybody either. obviously the boy not remembering anything. So I thought, well, where would be the best place? Well, obviously there was the diary that was written by Father Raymond Bishop. Remember, Father Raymond Bishop was the first priest to go to the case. He kept the diary. And what I thought was interesting about the diary and why I thought the diary was probably one of the more accurate things to go to was because it was an internal document with the church that was really never meant for public consumption. Um, this is an eyewitness. 
he's he's talking about it. He was there. He witnessed the entire thing. Um, I think it, the interesting aspect of that is that we finally had a really, uh, when you look at the diary, you have a really close uh, person to the case to give uh, eyewitness account. Okay. Um, Holleran was never, when you get into Holleran, uh, his interviews, um, it depends who Holleran would talk to at any given point what he would say. And sometimes he would, you know, it's almost like he wanted to tell the interview exactly what they wanted to hear if he could give a poll. Okay. All right, uh, Stephen, uh, before we burn up this hour, I wanted to give you a chance. You there? Yeah, we're here. Can you hear us? Hello. Hello. Yeah, can you hear us? I I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about your books. um, Hello? Okay, Ben, uh, let's cut this and uh, give him a chance to call back. Hello. All right, we're gonna we're gonna try. This is really this is worse than the <laughs> situation with the uh, Randall Forest. Can't Forest. Can we? Huh? <laughs> yeah, this is. Um, I don't know. It's, it's like uh, usually it's the UFO stuff. Uh, it's, it's not to get paranoid, but it seems like people don't want us to talk about. It. All right, here we try and get him back here because I wanted to ask about a very scary situation with with a couple of the priests that. That I heard about and have heard about in one or two different uh, situations here. Um, uh, let's get him back on there, Ben. Okay. Anyway, uh, the idea being that some of the priests may have picked up some of this negativity when uh, they were involved in the uh, the case. So, um, but in any case, uh, we're talking about the uh, 1949 Exorcist uh, case in in. St. Louis, in which the film was based. Uh, do we? I, this is this is a record here, uh, Stephen. Are you back with us? Yeah, I'm back with you guys. I'm sorry. I this is bizarre, but uh, it is. <laughs> this, this is one of the more bizarre I've ever seen uh, in ten years on the air. Anyway, what I was going to ask you was uh, before we uh, lose you again forever or something. <laughs> uh, maybe you could tell us about your books, your website, and uh, where people can find out more. Oh, well, if, if you can get the books anywhere in, in where books are sold, Amazon, Kindle, uh, Barnes & Noble, BAM, wherever, uh, the books are out there. Um, the books are are interesting. This, this was a, a little bit different. This book is not a, from a personal point of view as much. It's more of an investigative book. Mm-hmm. Um, but The Uninvited, obviously, is the story of the Union haunting and how I got into all of this. So, yeah. Um, all the books are out there at the website, stephenlachance.com. Um, you can go there as well. Um, look them up and, and see what you think. Great. And maybe we'll even get a film out of this eventually. Well, that'd be cool. Yeah, there are several people who have been involved in cases that were made into films who want to get back and do it right, you know. So. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, why don't we get back to uh, sort of the, uh, the aftermath of these things. And I've heard of this sort of uh, whispered from time to time in other cases, but there was some rumor, and Father Nicola mentioned this, although he didn't know for sure, that a couple of the priests who were involved had, and you mentioned this in the book, and some negative effects later in their lives or something of, of this kind that, that may or may not have been related to their involvement in this case, which of course is why... Donatism aside, the priests are supposed to be uh, very, very spiritual people before they're chosen to do this work. I mean, so, so, I mean, did you hear of anything negative happening to the priests uh, either during the case or later on? What I thought was interesting was the, uh, Father Balder, 
and I still get reports on um, people that went to uh, the Catholic high school or they went to the college and, and they were in the, in the high school they were not allowed to talk to Father Bowser they would see him in the hall they said he was always very quiet very reserved um, and they were told to leave him alone and they were actually told to leave him alone because they were told that he was the priest that performed the exercise. I've actually talked to students of the high school. But the, the, the example I used in the book that I thought was most interesting was, um, there was a student that was, that was, saw Father Bowder one, one day, and Father Bowder was stumbling and he was holding it against the wall, and the student thought he had been drinking, actually. And so the student goes to his elder and he says, I think he's been drinking, I saw Father Bowder, he's stumbling, and they tell him, no, wait until Mass and you'll see he's okay. Um, he did that exorcism years ago and it really had an effect on him. They said that once the Mass started, he was fine and he was great and he was back to normal. So I thought that was an interesting story because it was a good indication. Um, that man lost a tremendous amount of weight, anywhere from 35 to 75 pounds during the exorcism. Oh, I believe Father it, yeah. Bob, seen that happen. His brother's doctor... And his brother um, reported that he didn't realize he was doing the exercise because Bowder would have never talked about it because he wasn't supposed to. But during that time, he said that he'd seen his brother, and his brother had boils, these huge boils all over his um, uh, body um, that were oozing, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so I want you to think about this. I mean, think about the pain that he went through. Um, with boils and, you know, and then he's losing all this weight because he's fasting constantly because mm -hmm. he's in the middle of this case. And the sacrifice this man made and it affected him the rest of his life afterwards as well um, to save this child. I think that, that that's a testament um, to these nights. I think so, too. Uh, it does ring a bell, though, when it comes to shamanism because shamans have... Yeah the very same very similar approach when they attempt to cast out demons or what they believe are demons whatever you want to call them and it just it just struck me that and I don't know Ben you've been very quiet during the show here because you're usually trying to get well it's mostly because I'm trying to keep our guests here on the air <laughs> yeah, but <right. laughs> but you, you studied under a shaman um, and uh I, it just seems always seemed when I, when I would deal with shamans in the seventies and eighties, it just seemed as though it was, it was a it was there was kind of a similar sort of a, a basic fundamental human spirituality that you can build on later on, you know, after after that sort of thing. So uh, absolutely, yeah, okay. So uh, one question I had though, unless Ben has one, do you have a, a question here, Ben? Well, I I, I had a, a more broad stream, a broader question, but I don't know if it really really applies now. I, I well, I, I guess it could, um, unless you had something more pressing to ask. No, no, go ahead. I, I have one, one more question though. So I mean, I guess this sort of out. fits along the lines of what you were just saying that um, other cultures and uh, other other faiths, whether Christian or non-Christian seem to have a very, very similar um, kind of... Uh, I don't want to say a similar kind of view of possession, but some, something to the, to the same effect. And have you found, Stephen, that there's any sort of correlation between um, other people, other people's other traditions, other cultures, dealing with possessions? Absolutely. And one of the first, you know, when people started coming 
It's like they found out that you went through something, so then you were, people were gravitating to you. One of the first cases that gravitated my way, I remember, was a young boy in Kuwait, which obviously I couldn't have got there to help it, um, who was actually um, possessed by a djinn, mm-hmm. uh, which genie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all think the genie is a good thing, but actually a genie is more uh, demon-like. And some believe they're even even higher than the demon. But um, there, the Islamic religion, you know, has its form of exorcism. But what I find interesting about this is that oh, just about every major religion has a device that takes care of this. You know, I think, you know, a lot of times we look at the Catholic Church and we, you know, uh, they, they, it's like they have the corner on it. And I just had someone ask me the other day, why do you suppose that is? And I'm like, because they got the movie. You know, <laughs> really. I, I yeah. don't, you, really, I mean, if you think about it, that's that is true. Is really yeah. popular. I think there's, you know, and they satisfied with that answer. And I, I'm like, I really, seriously, that is it. I mean, it's that simple. It, you know, unfortunately in our society, that's the way we are. But every single religion out there, um, you know, the Jewish faith. I mean, you know, they have their own version as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's out there in, it's in all forms of spirituality. We talked about the shaman. You know, so um, it's, it's not something that I would say is um, foreign to other religions at all. It's, it's actually very much a part of them. Okay. The the question I wanted to uh, ask you about is that you know I'm I'm sort of uh, out of touch with the Roman Church uh, and I, I wondered if um, since my day in the 70s it's true that they've lightened up on information about exorcism I and mean, you're constantly hearing about people at the you know the Vatican having courses for people sometimes they're not even priests and uh, I used to have a couple of connections at the Vatican but they've all retired and so there's nobody else over there who'll talk to me so. <laughs> So, well, what information do you have about that? You know, is is there really more of an openness about this? Is there an increase in what they believe is the need for exorcisms, and what's generally going on in that scene? Well, Father Ricardo Reese, who is one of the, the, the oh, I don't tell me we lost. Oh, we didn't lose him again. Come on. What's that? The fifth time? This is ridiculous. Fifth time. Well, fifth time. Okay. Well, I guess I guess we'll find out. Give it three seconds. Three. All two. right. Because we're just about almost done anyway. Well, <laughs> all right. <laughs> at least he got his information out. Okay. Well, if um, he calls back, then let's. Uh, you know, we're pretty much out of time anyway. But uh, we'll be in touch with him off the air, and we'll, we'll, we'll put a few extra links on our websites for the poor man. Okay. Anyway. Um, very, very strange show, folks. Uh, again, we were talking with Stephen Lachance, uh, author and researcher, uh, author of Confrontation with Evil, an in-depth review of the 1949 possession that inspired The Exorcist. And that was released in February by Llewellyn Publications. It's all in all the bookstores, uh, along with our 2016 book, uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong. Indeed. And uh, I, I thought that was a really good discussion, although it kept being punctuated by these strange drop-offs. Uh, weirder, I think, than the 2010 production we did on CBS with the Rendlesham Forest uh, witnesses. Uh, the US I mean, there's probably UFO some folks. very obvious explanations for it. So, like what? I don't know. Electrical storms. It's, don't don't read into it. Just accept. Okay. It no, 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 no. You know, yeah, but I mean, this this is you know ridiculous. 
I mean, Anyhow, it is what it is. Before, nothing like this has happened. No, well, no, I, I guess not. But you know, uh, sometimes you just have an off day. Well, yeah, uh, off a uh, five times off day. Well, anyway, we'll, let's get to our. Uh, we can get to our uh, announcements in a minute. But uh, do you have any observations on the case? Now, you've never been involved in an exorcism case as such, Ben. No. But uh, what are your impressions? Just I mean, from what you've learned from from uh, me and from conversations like, uh, well, I've I've like had, had today. Well, as today. as you know, my my wife is a very devout Roman Catholic, and she has many friends who are in the seminary. And one of her friends um, was telling me about an exorcism class he was taking. So I guess you are are correct in that they've lightened up quite a bit on on uh, the, the whole exorcism thing. Yeah, we never had an exorcism class. No, well, now now it, it's offered, and um, I I suppose that um, sorry I was checking the phones. Uh, I I suppose that really like everything else that we we talk about in in any of our discussions is perception, how you perceive things usually tends to... Well, let me, let me put it to you like this. When people hear the word possession, they think something is entirely out of their control. Yes. Right. So you think possession and you're like... I mean, even, even now, the, the word of the word of, of it, it just evokes this, this <coughs> image in your mind of, oh, I'm being taken hostage by, by the devil and demons and, and stuff. And it, it, it's a very powerful word that reduces power in yourself. And you feel very powerless when you hear it. And... I think that there's there's a lot of in ins and outs and portions of it that people don't take into account. Like I was I I was I would you know Mary and I like to watch documentaries and stuff about various things. And there was there was a tiny little vignette that we watched about um, I can't remember what it was. It might have been the exorcism of somebody. I don't know. It was some like unsolved mystery thing that we were watching. And you know she she turned to me and you know the way that these things are presented like it's it's pretty pretty creepy but in actuality like they're not it's not really that creepy you know it's 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 how you experience it and how you understand what's going on really shows how the phenomena interacts with you again we're participants in the phenomena it doesn't just sort of happen to us you know we participate in it yeah well I, I have to. They're not always uncreepy. I mean, certainly some of the exorcisms I was involved with, especially one where no, some, what I'm saying is it's not right between the eyes. Uh, you know, there's a lot of yeah. sensationalization. There. Oh, oh, there is. Oh, Hollywood, good heavens, is the last place oh, you should yeah. go for information. Well, anyway, uh, it is what it is, and we, I think we'll maybe plan another show with Stephen. Hopefully, <laughs> have better luck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe work out some communications or whatever. Uh, but let's get back to. Um, uh, let's get to our announcements. Our plethora anyway. of announcements. Yes, we do. So take it away, Ben. So our newest book, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You've Never Heard of, is available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle. Uh, and we will have copies for sale at all of our uh, forthcoming events. And if you can't get to any one of these events and you still like an autographed copy of any of our books, you can get them at our show's online bookstore at BehindTheParanormal.com. Well, our 2016 book, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, is in most bookstores, and if they don't have it, they can certainly get it. It's also available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and other online retailers. And again, you can get an autographed copy um, at BehindTheParanormal.com. And our next event will be Labor Day weekend, September 3rd and 4th, at the Exeter UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire. Uh, 
a uh, great annual event that benefits local children's charities, and it's loads of fun. All the merchants get into the act. Uh, the subject of our talk on Saturday will be flap areas, UFOs, and the paranormal on steroids. On Sunday, for the uh, second year in a row, we'll uh, broadcast this show live from the Exeter Town Hall uh, with the audience and a panel of speakers, including Richard Dolan, Travis Walton, the Fire and the Sky fame, the great uh, Kathleen Martin, Denise Stoner, Peter Robbins, uh, Stephen uh, Mather Lees, uh, Carolyn LaRock. LaRock? I don't know why that name always throws me off. Always throws me off. You're in socket, you should know the French name. I know, but I don't technically live in Woonsocket anymore. Right. Uh, and our good friends from uh, Seacoast Saucers of New England will be there also. And tickets are uh, $20 for both days. Uh, the Meet meet the Speakers event on Saturday night is an extra $10. And uh, find out more at org. On Saturday, September 30th, uh, we'll talk about strange connections, UFOs, cryptids, and ghosts in western Connecticut and beyond at the Brandywine Living Center in Litchfield, Connecticut, heart of the Litchfield Triangle we talk about so frequently on the show. Uh, you, you should contact Nanette at 860-567-9500. Then on October 6th and 7th, uh, we'll be at the Greater New England UFO Conference in City Hall, uh, Lemonster, Massachusetts, for one of our favorite events of the year. And our subject will be the Fur Flies, Bigfoot, and UFOs. Uh, the following week, uh, October 14th, uh, myself and my father will be speaking at the Western Connecticut UFO Conference at the Danbury Connecticut Library, along with Linda Zimmerman, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and Shane Searway, and uh, other legendary researchers. Now, one week later, October 21st, uh, I'll be back at the Danbury Library, this time with author Bill Hall for a program about uh, Bill's 2014 book, The World's Most Haunted House, about the famous Bridgeport poltergeist case of 1974, uh, to which I am one of the few surviving eyewitnesses. Well, congratulations. Well, thank you. You did it. Uh, on Saturday, October 28th at uh, 1 p.m., well, we'll speak at the Portsmouth Public Library in New Hampshire. The subject is, What's Really Behind the Paranormal in New Hampshire and Beyond? And you can check out our YouTube channel, Behind the Paranormal Case Files, for a couple of cases that we have done files upon. And uh, we'll be soon getting productions together and getting ready to make more videos. Right. Meanwhile, find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and more at BehindTheParanormal.com, where you'll find over 720 free recorded shows from both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. Uh, and one thing about the eclipse tomorrow, everybody's going to be looking forward to that on uh, August 21st, uh, 2017 here. Uh, we're, g- a couple of, uh, one of our producers and I, and I think w- someone else, uh, actually two of us, are g- three of us, maybe four of us will be up at uh, America's Stonehenge with our friends, uh, Dennis Stone has been on the show, uh, in southern New Hampshire, a great archaeological site where he has an astronomical platform. And we're going to be not only observing the eclipse, but uh, planning a, a spe- very, very special production uh, from there, which will probably be on YouTube. You, you don't know this yet, Ben. Oh, well, thanks okay. for telling me. <laughs> You're welcome. I just did. Uh, you can find my other books at Amazon.com, Amazon Kindle, Barnes & Noble Nook, etc. But if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I, we in the case of the latest two books, will autograph them for you. So, Ben, what do we have to come up next week? So, next Sunday, August 27th, we'll welcome uh, Josh De- or Josh John D'Souza, former FBI special agent uh, who has investigated and written about the paranormal and multiversal concepts. Our subject, the implication of the paranormal for spirituality. Well, we'll leave you this afternoon with an utterance from the great Renaissance man Albert Schweitzer. 
The purpose of human life is to serve and to show compassion and the will to help others. So I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.